are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. We are going to talk about nicotine today, how it affects the brain, the benefits of quitting, and medications used for quitting. Perfect. Right. So I just read a really great blog. This is Nora Vocal, head of NIDA. This was from September 28th, 2018. This is great. This is kind of some novel things that we're seeing of how nicotine is just really so addictive. There's a couple different papers out that just were kind of displaying that. So we'll kind of start there and then dig in. So we we all kind of know a couple of the reasons why it can be see, so reinforcing. Like other drugs, nicotine stimulates the release of dopamine in the neurons that connects the nucleus accumbens to the prefrontal cortex. And that, and that teaches the brain to keep taking that, right? But compared to other ones, that's that's pretty, it's pretty mild, that release of dopamine. So that kind of asks, why, why is this so hard for patients to give up? When, when they just looked at the data, so about 22% of Americans are, are tobacco nicotine users. And, but 70% of our patients in treatment are, are using nicotine. That's high. Yeah, that is really high. And it's not surprising. You see it all the time. Yes. So I think this is really important that we talk about this and so that we're aware. But why, why aren't they able to quit? I mean, that's and I think this is where some of this, you know, data and this research comes in. So there's two things that came out with that. So there was one study out of Columbia. There's this is Dennis and Eric Candle. And there's the reward circuit using the FOSB gene. They, t- they said this underlies the learning processes. So what it does is it nicotine makes it easier for other drugs to teach users' brains to repeat their use. Isn't that interesting? That goes with that whole gateway substance with nicotine. And don't we, and I see that all the time. This is one of the first substances that many of our patients have used. So it it does create that priming effect. And then another reinforcing effect that seems particularly makes it difficult for them to quit. And this study that she talked about, this came from Carolitz and Perkins out of the University of Pittsburgh. And this was talking, this was their study, nicotine acutely enhances the reinforcement from non-drug rewards in humans. So it talked a lot about kind of habituation behavior. So they found that nicotine reduced the speed in which smokers became bored with visual reinforcers and it enhanced their ability and then enhanced the pleasure of visual stimuli. So that's things like when you think of like videos, movies, enjoying in music, things like that. I just, I find that one really interesting. And so it's not just nicotine withdrawal that you're trying to treat when patients are trying to quit. It's think about this. Nothing is pleasurable for them anymore. Isn't that so interesting? Yeah, that is really interesting. So I think you've summarized two of the main effects of nicotine. And that is one, it's, you know, nicotine's immediately absorbed 
because of the route of use, typically either smoked or uh, chewed, so buccal absorption, and it goes straight into the bloodstream, releasing acetylcholine, adrenaline, and dopamine. So it increases central nervous system uh, responses, and it increases reward circuitry response. And like you said, it, it has much more to do with motivation and learning than we thought it did. It's not only reward, and it has a lot to do with association. So, you know, I, I know a very good teacher of mine was saying that it's very, very important for people, especially people, well, all people to not use nicotine or tobacco products because of the health effects, but especially people who have addiction, because nicotine interferes with the process of learning and reward and memory. So when people are trying to get sober from other substances and they continue to use nicotine, it's derailing and sabotaging the efforts that they are making to learn new neural pathways. And a lot of it was probably to do with this FOSB gene yeah. that is expressed when you use nicotine. And also with this um, expression, excuse me, this association of everything that you do in association with nicotine is enhanced. So that cup of coffee with a cigarette is enhanced. Waking up first thing and going outside onto your balcony, it's so much better with a cigarette, etc. So when people quit, it's not only that they don't have the actual drug, it's the association and the enhancement, the potentiation of every single thing they did with nicotine is now gone and dampened. That's fascinating. Oh, you're so right. It's so, it's so fascinating. And you bring up such a good point, like when we have patients in recovery, the data shows that their their chances of sustained recovery is is 25% higher if they're able to quit, if we can get nicotine gone out of their system. You know, I mean, that's amazing, Darlene. And I and I think we we encounter all the time when we're counseling people with alcohol cessation or we're trying to help them with their opiate use disorder or their meth use that they're very res- most people are really resistant to quit tobacco or nicotine vaping, right? Yes. Because they and what's their main reason? I I cannot take that on right now. I can't handle that right now. I've just got to kick this thing. I've got to kick this thing that's really going to kill me, which is kind of ironic because when you look at the data for people with substance use disorder, the most likely cause of death is actually tobacco-related disease. Yes. And so if you help them actually quit everything at the same time, their chances of being sober are much higher. It's just getting people to believe that and looking at the science and getting providers to understand that. And that's why treatment programs and individual providers who support tobacco and nicotine-free programs are much more likely to have good success. And this is really about the bottom line, right thing to do for our patients, even though patients may not show up because they want to smoke or use nicotine and therefore numbers and revenue may be down. It's not the right thing to do. You are so right. Before I forget, I just want to bring up this one point. I listened to this really interesting talk on, and it was on nicotine replacement treatment by a cardiologist. And he brought up the most interesting point and he was so right. But he talked about that all when patients are smoking, this is all arterial, right? All of our nicotine replacements are through the venous system. It's much slower onset, and that can be a big challenge for them. And that's something to remember of why it's so difficult when we're doing just pure nicotine replacement. And so that's just, isn't that an interesting thought? Like sometimes we're thinking, well, 
this is why our, you know, our patient comes in and we just tell them, yeah, well, don't smoke and here, put a patch on. And I don't understand why, why they're angry and they're, they're, they're still having withdrawal and why this isn't working for them. That's, isn't that so interesting? Because, yeah. And he's like, this is, this is part of that reason, not to mention these other things that are going on, but you know, we'll get that a little bit more, you know, to that when we talk about medications some more, but that's just something to keep in mind is the delivery system is, is different and it's hard to match that. So just, just a little thought there. So some of the health benefits. So this is something I, I think we're maybe pretty good at this. And this is sometimes hard to get through to our patients, right? They don't, they just, oh, I've heard it all before. I know all that. But I really love, I think SAMHSA has a, they have a really good um, overview of, you know, smoking cessation and substance abuse treatment for providers. You know, so just a really good handout that you can just download. Great resource, you know, but they have a really good timeline. That's just great to if you've never gone over this with your patients, it's good to do that at least once or good to do in group for them. Right. So but it just goes, you know, in 12 hours of cessation, carbon monoxide levels drop to normal. Two weeks to three months, the chance of having a heart attack begins to drop. Lung function begins to improve. One to nine months, coughing and shortness of breath decrease. At one year, added risk of coronary heart disease is half that of a smoker's. Two to five years, chance of having a stroke is reduced to the to same as of a non-smoker. And at 10 years, lung cancer risk is about half that of a smoker's. Risk of cancers of the mouth, throat, esophagus, bladder, cervix, and pancreas decrease. And at 15 years, risk of coronary heart disease is back to that of a non-smoker. So those are just, I think, the most succinct things to just kind of keep in mind and make sure that we're at least touching on those. But I don't think that at the end of the day, that's going to always be the most motivating factors for our patients. It's very motivating for us, but I don't think that's always the most motivating for our patients. True. I think that's true. I I think it's fascinating data and it's very hopeful, but I think we've got to try and identify what's motivating the patient who's contemplative about quitting and move them into action phase. What is it that they identify as a reason to want to quit? Is it that they don't want to spend the money anymore? Is it that they're worried about their health? Is it that a family member wants them to quit? Is it too expensive? And then just use those reasons to try and lever them into uh, being successful. Yeah. What is their perceived benefits? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, so medications, Paula, where do, where do you start? Well, I mean, we go, there's FDA approved medications for nicotine cessation. You know, we use varenicline and bupropion. They're non-nicotine medications that help people quit. They have good data to back them up. They target nicotine receptors in the brain and they help withdrawal and they block the effects of nicotine. So they kind of act as agonist, antagonist type methods. Um, And then NRT obviously is kind of first line and approved for smoking cessation therapy. The program that I work for is, is a very large publicly funded residential program and we don't allow tobacco or vaping. And so we use primarily NRT and then we encourage our patients to also use either bupopion or varenicline as well. And uh, we have a pretty aggressive NRT protocol 
that we put people on and um, developed basically on a several different guidelines um, that I that we just kind of melded together and and then also offer people support from one of the non-nicotine medications. No, I mean, I think that's excellent. And the more data is coming out is we are, when you're, especially if you're using like NRT, I think we are underdosing patients, don't you think? Absolutely. That That's one of the things I realized when I was doing a lot of research, developing the protocols for my organization, is we are underdosing people who smoke a pack a day or more. They are in withdrawal with a 21 milligram patch. Exactly that. And, and we often see failures because people are just not getting enough nicotine replacement. Now, it's kind of a double-edged sword because... You also have a tendency for people to get onto nicotine replacement and then to never get off of it. So mm-hmm. I think we do have to address the amount of nicotine tolerance people have. And you can do that by quantity of cigarettes used and the uh, quantity of chew tobacco or vaping. And then also the tool to see um, you know, how, lo- how addicted they are basically to, to their cigarettes. What clinical tools do you use? Do you have any that you use? Well, you know, so I will use, I mean, I basically go through the same, like which, you know, when do you start smoking? You know, so how much are you smoking? Which cigarette do you, would you, do you miss the most? What, and what times do you smoke? Cause yeah, you do have some patients that will go their entire day at work and don't smoke at all. They have rules about their smoking, right? They don't smoke in the car. So yes, finding finding those tools and is their partner a smoker? And th- so yeah, I just do those basic get those basic questions and and figure out like, or is this a person who, if they have a job where I'm chain smoking and really addicted and really struggling there, what, what you know what that what is that going to look like for them? Yeah, perfect. I, I totally agree. And the um, one of the classic tools that they talk about is the Phagostrom test yes. for nicotine dependence, which exactly asks a lot of the questions you, you ask. And that gives you an idea of how addicted your patients are to their nicotine. The most important of which, as and you mentioned it, is how soon after you wake up do you smoke your first cigarette? That is almost classic for diagnosing nicotine dependence versus just a nicotine habit, right? Do people yes. really need nicotine replacement, in other words, or can they quit with behavioral support? Because if they smoke within the first 30 minutes of waking, then you have someone who truly has withdrawal from nicotine if they go longer than that. Um, other questions on the Phagostrom test are, do you find it difficult to refrain from smoking in places where it's not allowed, like in the library or at church or in the cinema or in treatment? Yes. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people, unfortunately, have been exited from treatment because they've you know, smuggled in tobacco or vapes. Uh, another question is, which cigarette do you hate to give up most? And the two options are the first one in the morning or any other. And one of the techniques based on the response of that question is, if their first cigarette of the day is their most favorite cigarette, which is nearly always true, right? Yes. Have people who want to give up smoking as opposed to giving it up um, all at once, which has kind of been the old school way of doing it, give up their nighttime cigarettes or their midday cigarettes first, one at a time, 
and back it up all the way till they only have their morning cigarettes left. Um, and then, of course, just finding out how many cigarettes people smoke. You know, if it's 10 or less, they probably don't have physiological dependence to nicotine, but um, they may still need quite a lot of behavioral support because of that association and learning reward that has been hijacked, as you were discussing at the beginning of the podcast. But if they have 11 or more cigarette use per day, they're going to need some support. If they have over 20 cigarettes a day, they're going to need more than 21 milligrams of nicotine replacement. And if they're over 30, significantly more than that. So there's two more questions in the Fagostrom test, like, do you smoke more frequently in the first few hours of waking than the rest of the day? Again, this is determining versus just um, people who are just smoking throughout the day and can give it up more easily. And then the last question of the Fagostrom is, do you smoke when you're so ill that you that you are in bed most of the day. If people answer yes to that, it's kind of like the test, the questions that elude in a DSM-5 to any use disorder that you've got use in spite of consequences. So even though people are sick with pneumonia, bronchitis, the influenza, COVID-19, they're still smoking. That's an indication that they truly will benefit from nicotine replacement therapy and FDA-approved nicotine uh, cessation drugs like varenicline and bupropion and they need a lot of psychosocial supports like the quit line, behavioral support, and maybe some of the other complementary techniques as well. Absolutely. Anything we need to be aware of as far as the medications. So what patients do you use them in? Which ones don't you? Well, you Side tell effects. me, what, what, do you, what do you think about when you're using, say, bupropion? What, what's the patient profile? So kind of the patient profile that I'm looking at, you know, bupropion, if we have a patient where sometimes maybe I'm looking for dual, so maybe some benefit for mood. Um, there's caution if you have history of seizure on that patient. And so I would be careful about that. And then you you do need to kind of titrate up with, a, with bupropion, but certainly I will use it with nicotine replacement therapy too. And so I think a lot of times we just try one and it's the same adage of try every, you need to try sometimes multiple things and combine. And so I will do that too. And then, you know, pregnant patients is a different, is a little bit different and so I, you know, with some of the medications, and so that's the only, that's the only cautions there too. And then Veranoclean and is same, like, it, I was just reading a really interesting study. So we have the black box warning as far as, and every patient probably, the first time you mention that me medication to them, they always tell me, well, I, I hear that that causes you know, increased risk of depression and suicide. And so they, or, you know, or my friend got really depressed on that. I don't, I'm not going to take that doc. And I, I mean, it's just a very tired excuse. There is a really good, and I need to pull up the information to give them credit, but there was actually a really good study that showed, you know, since even with that warning, we need to monitor the patients, but really it's kind of the chicken and the egg. Is it more the stress of just quitting smoking or the medication? And they and when they studied that, the latest studies are not showing really in any increase versus any other smoking cessation product. So it's not showing higher on the varenicline at this time. So I really try to reassure my patients that it's this... This true, the true side effects I try to warn them about is more nausea, the vivid dreams, and we can adjust the dose. So if they're having nausea, headaches, 
vivid dreams that are bothering them, then a lower dose that they can maintenance on is fine and prescribe it much longer. This is something, and again, this was a a great talk that talked about like, why, why are we weaning patients off in two and three months? And even lately it's come out and insurances are paying for it much longer. Keep them on it much longer. And that goes back to what we're talking about is changing this kind of reward circuitry in the brain. You've got to get them past these cues, especially these patients that are highly cued in their environment. They've got to, they've, you've got to work past that. So it's very effective and it works, but you've got to be able to work with that. So with my patients who really have that dependence, I, I really try to encourage some of these medications. I talk to them about that. But I talk to them about some of the side effects too, but they are they're usually pretty minimal compared to the side effects of their smoking too. How about you, Paula? Right. No, I totally agree with all of that. Um, a lot of people, you know, especially in psychiatry, even I see provider shyness to prescribe Renaclin especially. And I, I just don't think the data supports that. We have overwhelming data that it's very beneficial for patients and it should be part of our offerings. Um, and you're right, that brings up such an interesting point that some of the side effects from varenicline and bupropion may just be withdrawal symptoms from nicotine. Um, and if people can tolerate the medications, um, it could actually, you know, we definitely see higher rates of quit. Uh, we definitely see higher quit rates. So I agree with you. And we know now that we can combine therapies. So combine NRT with bupropion, even NRT with varenicline, even though previously they didn't think that would made sense pharmacologically. Now they think it's probably beneficial. Yes. People do better. Better adherence. Uh, you could combine yeah. bupropion and exactly. And you could combine bupropion and varenicline as well mm-hmm. in the right person. Uh, remembering that, you know, this nicotine and tobacco use is is more life-threatening than almost any other lifestyle choice that people make. So yeah, and then and then getting people support too through the quit line and through peers who've quit and groups and that kind of thing, I think that's really important and, and getting people some tools and skills that they can use and keep in their pocket for when they have cravings or come across situations or circumstances. No, SAMHSA really actually important. had s- some data and it was some good data that showed the quit line is actually effective. So I do refer patients to the quit line and they have several apps and I, you know, I will get that on our website that you can refer patients to. So they go to texting the patient and just reaching out to them, but just that support and connecting with them of just giving them that reminder is showing hey, they do have a little bit higher success rate. So I think you bring up a really good point there. It's about it's all about support, right? Giving them whatever support we can through this process. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, what else? Well, there's a lot more about vaping and adolescent use and pregnant pregnancy, but I think this is a good start and uh, we can continue yeah. with more episodes. We will, get, we will touch on those more later, but I think this is a good primer. So thank you. Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
content of the podcast are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.